Hey guys, it's Terry from The Statement Show. Hey, you want a free audiobook? I'm going to tell you how to do it, okay? You go to thestatementshow.com, click on the Audible link, choose from over 180,000 titles. Zach, 180,000 titles. Now, I know you love some audible.com, right? Absolutely. Recently, I've gotten another Adam Carolla book. I get them out of sequence. So the, I think this is the first one he did, but it's called In 50 Years We'll All Be Chicks. And it's basically <laughs> him just going through his whole life, but he narrates it and kind of does a lot of off-the-cuff stuff. And so you're getting a lot more than what's in the book. So Because yeah. he likes to just kind of put his own little spin on it. But I'm going to tell you what, I wouldn't do it any other way. It's fantastic for long car rides and for commuters. Yeah, and anywhere. You can listen yeah. anywhere. You exactly. know, Listen to your books wherever you are. You've got a free app at home, in the car, at the gym, whatever. Look, man, you got 30 days of membership for free. Plus, guess what? You get a book on us to get it started absolutely free. I don't know how much better it could get, to be honest with you. <laughs> Easy exchange. Like you don't, yeah. Yeah. No risk. Sure, you no don't risk. love the book? Swap it for free anytime. It's such a great deal. Again, go to thestatementshow.com. Click on the affiliates link. You're going to see it sitting right there. Audible.com. Click on it. Go to it right then and there. Right now. Stop what you're doing. Go to thestatementshow.com. Click on the affiliates link. Click on audible.com. Get yourself a free audio book. You're going to love it. They got A-list celebrities narrating their favorite stories. Again, 180,000 titles. We're talking about Grammy award-winning audio books here. Again, try it for free. 30 days, you still get to keep the audio book. You don't like it, cancel it out afterwards. But you can't say The Statement Show didn't give you anything in the process. TheStatementShow.com, the affiliate link, and click Audible. Enjoy the book. Hey, guys. This is Rebecca Gregory, and you're listening to The Statement Show with Zach and Terry. From the Night Shift Crew Studios in the D.C. metro area, this is The Statement Show. The lights are on. I'm Jim Harold from the Paranormal Podcast. Hey, this is your Olympic hero, Kurt Angle. Hi, this is Lillian Garcia from the WWE. Hello, everybody. It's Tony Todd. Hi, this is Zach Ward. Howdy, y'all. This is Michael Hall, Green Beret combat veteran and TV personality. You're listening to The Statement Show with Zach and Terry. So get ready to make a statement. Welcome back to another edition of The Statement Show. I'm Terry James. And I'm Zach Chahey. And you are listening to the podcast that fits in no category. Today, we have Boston Marathon bomber survivor Rebecca Gregory. Rebecca is here to talk with us about her new memoir, Taking My Life Back, in which she brings readers along on her personal journey through abuse, mistakes and pain, and the faith that pulled her through. Rebecca, welcome to The Statement Show. Thanks so much. It's good to be on. So I kind of want to just jump right into this. You've you've written a memoir in which you share your story. Like I said, it's called Taking My Life Back. So tell us what exactly does that title mean to you and why did you decide to write the book? I feel like the title is everything because not only did I say that when I crossed the finish line in on the, of the Boston Marathon in April of 2015 after I had gotten my prosthetic leg and I just decided I was going to do everything on a fake leg that I wasn't going, that I hadn't done on two real legs because people think that I was running the marathon and I was absolutely not running the marathon. I was on the sidelines thinking, why in the world would anyone run 26.2 miles <laughs> for the fun of it? <laughs> and so, you know, t- taking my life back just means I am not going to have the Boston Marathon define what I do and how I live my life. And I'm not going to live my life in fear. And two brothers tried to take everything from us that day. And what they really did was make us stronger. Mm-hmm. And so even though it's an adapted life now, 
and we left our normal lives on Boylston Street, um, I feel like I'm taking a piece of that back every day that I choose to get up and go on and continue and, and just try to bring hope to others. Yeah, absolutely. And and honestly, that story is absolutely fascinating. And we definitely want to get into that horrific day. But your journey actually began a little bit before that. So tell us about your childhood and some of the challenges that you faced as a young girl. Sure. And one of the main reasons I wrote the book in the first place is just to talk about my whole story. Mm-hmm. You know, People mm-hmm. know me as a, a Boston Marathon survivor, but my story actually started when I was very young and I lived in an abusive home. My dad was an evangelist that traveled all over the world preaching, and he came home and beat me and my mother. And so I had a very different view of what, you know, church was and what love really meant. And so I grew up in this very confused state, and I'm so thankful that I have such a wonderful mom to lean on because that was really kind of what shaped the rest of my life. And I look at stupid decisions that I've made, you know, Mm. and now I can kind of stem them back to childhood. Um, But that's really where my story started. And so I take readers throughout the entire, you know, chapters rather than just the one of the marathon. Sure, sure. So that that had to be straight. Okay, so you say your your father was a traveling evangelist, correct? Yes, he was. And and he, he came home and actually abused you. So that had to really throw you into a completely different realm right there, because I know that a lot of your book is about the faith that you have. Where did was there a point where you kind of felt like you lost that faith or had you always had that faith? I guess just knowing that your your father was, you know, within the church, but then he would come home and and do those type of things. I mean, I guess as a young person, you would think that's the norm. But as you get a little older, you go, wait a minute, this is definitely not normal. Was there a point where you where you ever felt like you lost that? I think I'm kind of like anyone else where there's times where you really believe in something and then there's times where your world hits you and you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't take any more. And as a little girl trying to figure out why I was making my dad so angry and why all he wanted to do was just, you know, beat us up, I I couldn't comprehend him then tucking me into bed and telling me how much he loved me. You know, it was it was just such a crazy world. And then when my parents did divorce and we still had to go with them on weekends and then I found myself starving and, you know, we had like one pack of cinnamon rolls. I'll never forget this. My dad got us those 99 cent packs of cinnamon rolls at the gas station and I gave them to my sisters because I didn't want them to be hungry. And that's all we ate all weekend. And so we lived in such a different place back then. But every time I would start to doubt something, um, I feel like God would reveal himself to me in some type of powerful way. And it made me think that, you know, this is not a normal way and there is something bigger out there. And one day I'm going to find purpose in even the toughest amount of pain. And the bombing wasn't even your first close call with death, correct? Tell us what happened there (laughs) several years prior to that, because I'm sure that that changed your life as well. You know, it's it's almost like a sink or swim my whole life, so I really don't know anything different. Uh, six months before Boston happened, I got held up in a Walmart parking lot at gunpoint and robbed. So I thought that was going to be a big thing. A couple of years before that, I got into this horrible car accident where a deer came through my windshield and flipped my car over and split it in half. And, you know, it, it's like that's been my life. 
all this time. And so I think that that was one of the reasons that I just said, I need to put my whole story out there because mm-hmm. while people, you know, usually they don't get blown up by bombs and I hope that that, you know, doesn't become a trend, but everyone has life blow up in their face. And so if I can kind of put everything out and say, yeah, just because this happened doesn't mean this is not going to follow, but you can still find that it's just a chapter and maybe the next chapter of your life is going to be the most beautiful one of all. So right. you were you were held up at Walmart and then you had a fatal car crash not that long after? Or I'm sorry, not fatal, but obviously close to being fatal car crash with a deer. That was actually before the Walmart parking lot. Yeah, but that was a couple years before. No, but it's just it was kind of that timetable. You know, every every year or so, something crazy would happen, and I I don't know. It's just become my normal. (laughs) Well, what I find to be fascinating about it is most people, you know, they they have one thing. I mean, the the Boston Marathon that would set people in a whole other realm right there, but. The abuse, the car accident, the robbery, then the balsam, um, all these things, most people would lose faith. Most people would go a completely different realm of thinking. And you, sounds to me, at least through your memoir, that you actually grew stronger. Your faith grew stronger. And that's fascinating. I mean, because a lot of people would not, you know, I mean, people get into drugs or, or, you know, whatever the case may be. And it just seems like your faith has gotten even stronger. And that's what's so amazing about your story. I feel like if I didn't have my faith to cling on, then I would have given up a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And I, someone had recently asked me the question, what if you get to the end of your life when you do die and you find out that there's nothing afterwards? And mm-hmm. my answer in simple terms is just that I would rather go my whole life believing in something bigger and get to the end and find out it's not true than not believing in anything and not having that to cling on to and get me through and then find out that it is. And so, you know, every time I start to doubt, something happens and it makes me say, man, I should have never doubted this in the first place. And my entire life has just been one miracle after another. And, you know, it, it it's just very amazing when I put it all together and I saw the chapters of the book and I read it and I'm like, I really have gone through all of this. Like, this is the, the 29 years of my life. Then, goodness. Well, how did it come about the whole book made you decide to go forward with doing a book? So actually, it's pretty crazy because when I was 10 years old, I made myself a promise that I would have a book published and written by the time I was 30. And I hate to say my age because I'm really struggling with the whole age of 30, but I I turned 30 on April 12th and the book comes out on April 4th. Mm-hmm. And so it's just incredible. But I have written things down my entire life. When I was going through the struggles in my childhood, I was writing constantly. And that's kind of how I healed. And then if something great happened, I wrote about that too. So it's just been one of those things that has always been really important to me. And I knew that I wanted to write a book. I just had no idea how much I was going to have to fill the chapters with. Mm. And, I, and I mean, as a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing, can you tell us a little bit about that day and, and you know, all the all the experiences that have changed your life since then? Because I could not even comprehend going through what you went through. And, and probably most of the people that that listened to us couldn't even think about going through that. So just I know you had said a little bit that you weren't even there to run, but just kind of take us through that day and exactly how it changed your life afterwards. Sure. And I was in Boston that weekend. It was actually my birthday weekend, my 26th birthday weekend, my first time ever in the city. 
And I had gone up with a guy that I was dating at the time to watch his mom who had qualified to run in the Boston Marathon. I had never seen so many people in my life and the contagious enthusiasm in the air is something that I'll never forget. It was just so cool to watch so many people support all of these runners who had trained so hard. And I remember we started our day at the 17 mile marker. We had all these homemade signs and so we held them up and my five-year-old son Noah was with me and I can remember him holding up his sign and being all excited And then one of the people in our group decided that we needed to make our way closer to the finish line and actually see our friend cross. And so we did. And we were right there in the action. I mean, we were about as close to the finish line as you can possibly get. And so, I, you know, Noah had just gotten really, really bored. He's five years old. There's only so many runners he can watch streaming by. Um, he started tugging on my clothes and I was like, mom, mom, when are we going to leave? And once <laughs> he asked me for some toys, you know, and I'm like, Noah, I don't have toys. We're in the middle of the street. And so I had told him to sit down on my feet and play in the rocks like he was a scientist. But of course, rocks was pushing it because we were on asphalt. But to a five-year-old, that was cool at that time, right with his back against my shins. And that was where he was when the bomb in the backpack went off directly behind us. And it was later I found out it was about three feet. And later the doctor said that because he was sitting down, my legs took everything in the back of them. And that's what ultimately shielded him from the blast. And so Noah was able to pretty much walk away with only minor injuries. He had a cut to his bone on his right leg. He had a piece of shrapnel grazed the back of his head. So he's got some scars from that today. Uh, He had GI bleeding, but he was out of the hospital in five days and I was in the hospital for 56. So Hmm. that right there tells you it just, it's incredible because he was right there with me. And he's running around like a normal kid playing baseball and football and just having the time of his life. And, you know, I would go on to um, do a, a limb salvage process of a year and a half. And they wanted to try desperately to save my left leg. To me, it looked like a shark had eaten me for lunch. I had chunks of bone and muscle and tissue just blown away. I had a, a hole blown through my foot. 80% of the bones in my ankle and my foot were completely gone. And so after 18 months of surgeries and bed rest and a wheelchair, I decided this was enough for me. And I I made the decision to amputate. And so almost two years after the bombing, um, I actually amputated the left leg below the knee. And I said it was the best decision I've ever made, and I will stand by it every day. Yeah, I don't know if I could have made it. So that's in a nutshell. That, <laughs> I think I'm with you on that one, Zach. I don't know that that one is something that, oh my yeah, goodness. I don't think I could have made it. I, I don't, it would have been a very hard decision. I mean, obviously, you didn't make mm-hmm. it lightly. And mm-hmm. Sure. Would it so have been possible I, I to say it? Was, was it something it that... It wouldn't have been. Oh, it wouldn't have? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. No, my, my doctor even said that they probably, you know, if I had gone to another hospital, they would have amputated my leg right on... Uh, on that day, mm-hmm. um, they really wanted to try to save it. And even at the end, my doctor just said, I'm so sorry. I should have let you do this a long time ago. I know that you're ready for it. 
And for me, it was just cutting off what was holding me back in life. And I joked and I, I wrote it a breakup letter and I said it was like a bad boyfriend. I needed to get it out of my life for good. Sure. And we had a going away party for it. I had one last pedicure. I had a goodbye dinner. And I didn't want my family to suffer anymore. You know, my little boy has watched me go through 65 operations. Mm-hmm. My parents have been there through everything. And I just, I didn't want them to hurt because this was me moving forward. This wasn't me taking a step back, even though, you know, I was literally cutting my leg off so I wouldn't be taking steps for a while. It was me moving forward with my life. Absolutely. Sure. Sure. Now, is that is that day, the day of the bombing, is that is that get replayed over and over and over in your head? Or is that something that you felt like you did? Did it take a while to move forward or do you still, I don't know, wake up in the middle of the night or anything like that? I mean, do you feel any sort of trauma from that day or has it almost just been kind of put in the closet and locked away now? I wish that I could say that I never thought about it. Um, It's the hardest thing in the world to get up every day and be scared to death to leave your house because Mm -hmm. you think someone's going to try to kill you or your family. Everything that we saw that day, it was like a war scene. You know, people's body parts were laid on the ground and ball bearings and BBs and nails and everything that these two brothers packed into these pressure cookers went to everyone within range. And so what we saw, the emotional is what gets you. The physical has been tough, but I'm very, I feel very blessed even with the hardship because, you know, it's almost like survivor's guilt because I was as close to a bomb as some of these people who have more serious injuries or, you know, the people that didn't make it off the street that day. So that's tough for me. I'm like, why did I get spared? You know? And so it's it's hard because your brain will just drive you crazy sometimes. And so the PTSD and the nightmares are just a part of life now. It's this new normal. And so I wake up consistently with nightmares three to four times a week at least. Ugh. And I, I don't sleep at night. I'm, mm-hmm. I've kind of become an insomniac because yeah. I'm scared of what my, my dreams are going to bring me. And it's, um, yeah, it, it's been tough and it still is tough. Things like fireworks or the other day, this lady left a backpack next to my suitcase at the airport, un- completely unintentional, but my brain automatically associates backpacks with bombs. And so yeah. it, it's real. The emotional is what gets you. How about your son? How's he doing? I mean, that day had to be traumatic on him or again, was he so young that maybe it has been, you know, put into a whole other whole other compartment on his dealing with it okay as well or or not so much? That's been the biggest advantage is that he was young. He mm-hmm. was five at the time. And so Noah and I have both been in therapy and his therapist said the best thing that could have happened is for it to happen when he was so little. And when our, I guess our brains, from my understanding, don't comprehend emotion and struggle the way that an adult brain does. And so my child looks at the bombing as kind of like a story, like he's telling somebody what happened, but he doesn't associate all of the fear and the emotion and the sadness that I do, or as an adult, we would. And so that is, has been really good. Now I have seen him in other situations. He wouldn't get back on his bike. So that is, you know, a part of PTSD. So he's exhibited in, in other ways, but he's never had nightmares. He's never, um, 
you know, been very scared to leave the house. The first couple of months he was, but I haven't seen that from him in a really long time. And he's doing great. I'm, I'm so proud of him. He is a tough cookie. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you had said a little bit earlier that your parents were there beside you. I know obviously your mom was by your side nonstop while you recovered there in Boston. What would you say is the biggest role that she's played in your life since then? My mom's always played a big role in my mm-hmm. life and she really, you know, it doesn't surprise me that she was with me for the whole 56 days and never left my side. Um, I was fortunate enough that my stepdad um, adopted us when I was a teenager. And so that's who I call my dad. That's who is my dad, not my biological father. But he was able to stay with Noah and bring him home so he could attend school while I was still in the hospital and made a very good team for something that no parent should ever have to go through. But my mom has been my rock in so many ways. I had to move back in with her, which is mm-hmm. so humiliating. I, you know, I was, I was an independent adult making my own way. <laughs> and all of a sudden, life blows up in my face, literally, and I'm back yeah. in with my parents. So... <laughs> I have I have given her a heart attack a time or two in my life, but I haven't. Oh, she's still going, bless her heart. That's a little hint for all the guys out there that are still sucking off their parents and don't have any really good excuse for doing it. So. <laughs> Get out yeah. of your mom's basement. Yeah, right. <laughs> she was. She did you did you notice that Zach? She says she's hum, she was humiliated to have to go back with her mom and her dad, even though. She went through what she's doing. Then you got oh, people yeah. that are still living with their parents because they they just feel like living with their parents. Oh and she God. was humiliated. <laughs> That's funny. That's good stuff. You know, um, there are exceptional circumstances. I'll <laughs> give people that. You know, but for me, I I like to have my own place, and that, right. it was it was just a little too much. <laughs> Very overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Now, two years after the bombing, you returned to Boston. Is that correct? You, and actually ran part of the marathon. What, what was that experience like for you? Well, it was crazy because at the Boston Marathon in 2013, I'm not going to lie, I was on the sidelines eating chocolate-covered pretzels and, like I said, wondering why anybody would run. But for me, it was just a part of me saying, you know, I am going to do everything that I did in the old life, but I'm going to do it 10 times better. I, For 26 years, I expected to get out of bed and put two feet on the ground and go about my day. And when I couldn't do that anymore, when I now had to reach for a wheelchair or a prosthetic leg to get up, I just, I, it gave me whole new motivation. And so I decided that not only was I going to learn how to walk on this leg, I was going to run on it too. And I was so proud of myself because I had gotten my prosthetic in January of 2015. And by two months in, I was running 16 miles. And so not only was I learning how to walk on it, but I was learning how to run too. And it was really, really difficult because walking on a fake leg is never going to be fun. But I was really just determined and I pushed myself a little too hard and I ended up running one day and I got back and I I took off my leg and it was busted open at the bottom where the surgery had been. And I was so defeated because it was like I was on this high of all highs thinking no nobody could stop me. And then all of a sudden I'm back down to this rock bottom again. And I went into my doctor's office and he said, Rebecca, you absolutely cannot run in the, in the marathon. And I had already promised myself. I had promised, you know, I made it Facebook official. So and that's a big thing. You know, <laughs> when huge. you put it out there on social <laughs> media, you've got to do it. You better do but it. Right. He said, <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
But he said, you know, you can't do it. And so what I decided to do instead was I jumped in at the end and I ran the last 3.2 miles. And for me, 3.2 meant that that was the time in between me getting my prosthetic and me running in the marathon. So it was 3.2 months. And it wasn't about the number of miles. It was about crossing the finish and taking my life back and, you know, running across where Boyles, down Boylston Street looking at where I had gotten blown up and saying that this is not going to define who I am. It's what I choose to do after this. And because of this, I have a huge platform to bring other people hope. And if I can help somebody through my struggles, then what more would I want to do with my life? I'm very humbled and honored by that. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I I can't even, I, I can barely drive 3.2 miles, so I could only imagine <laughs> running it. I know, I know walking, it's a whole, whole other story, but running it's, oh my goodness. So let, let me ask you this. I, there was something that I wanted to, I, have you actually seen the movie Patriots Day? I have. Yeah. My dear friends, Jess and Patrick are featured as their characters mm-hmm. are featured in the film. And so I, I went to the premiere mainly for them, just to be in support of it. And Mm -hmm. that was a tough watch for me. Right. It messed me up (laughs) pretty bad. Was it pretty accurate? I mean, is it pretty accurate? It is. You know, it's it's a pretty accurate portrayal of everything. I think that they did uh, a good job on it. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's, you know, it's Hollywood, obviously, (laughs) but I think that they were very respectful in how they, they did everything. And it was, it was very, very hard to watch. Yeah, I could imagine that's it. I mean, I guess it probably was just like reliving it all over again. That's that's the weird. even though, like you said, there's it's got that Hollywood feel to it. I would imagine it's still you're trying to forget, but you can't. Like you said, you're you're waking up a couple different times a, a week and then this movie comes out. And I remember actually just seeing the trailer for it and thinking, I hope Hollywood didn't get a hold of it and make it some special effects craziness that that Hollywood can do sometimes. I hope that they kept it to you know, to as real life as it could get without going too crazy. And I've actually spoken to a few different people that say that it it really is a great movie, but I've never spoken to someone Mm -hmm. who's actually been part of that day. So to hear you say that they did a great job really, really does mean a lot. I mean, yeah. I think that they did. Um, For what they had to work with, I think it was very respectful and I think that it was very neat because you did have, you know, survivors featured that, you know, they said that they went and they made sure that the scene of the of the bombing was accurate and real and raw because I think people need to see, you know, as as much as they can how it really was. And I've even been told, you know, that well, why don't you just get over it? It was four years ago. Okay. Oh, and on. I just can't believe when people say that because and, and very few do, but for the survivors and the people that were affected that day, the victims' families, it's every single day of our lives are different. We we truly left our old lives on Boylston Street and we will never get those back. And so as much as I would love to just forget about it or whatever, I can't do that. But I try to make the most of every day that I do have. And I try to live my life to the fullest and know that I'm not sure when my time is going to be up. And I want to live my life in a more meaningful way than I did before Boston. Yeah. So like right now, how how would you define your life right now? How does that look? How's the family? And I, I saw that. I think I, that I can't remember who it was. But I think that you was it fairly close to after the bombing, you got married. Right. And then. 
got that there was a there was a, that whole mess right there i think right but then you've been married <laughs> after <laughs> look look you know okay, I, I was so i was actually listening to that rebecca <laughs> so I, I i've been down that road with you <laughs> as a matter of fact i think my first marriage was actually shorter than yours so <laughs> i'm with you girl i know exactly where you're coming from yeah, I mean it it sounds terrible, but when you when you see it for what it was, it was I went to the the marathon with a guy that I was dating casually, long distance. We didn't know each other like we should have known each other, and we got blown up together. And then all of a sudden, you know, media is fueled by this and we're the fairy tale couple after this horrible tragedy and everybody wants it to be something. And we and I feel like I wanted it to be something. I needed that at that time. You know, my whole life had just been taken from me almost and I needed to to cling to something and that support and what I got it just it wasn't that and unfortunately you know there there was a lot that happened um you know infidelity and everything else and I won't get into it but I remember after everything was was said and done I, I went to a therapist's office and I said, please tell me what I am doing wrong to attract these kind of people because <laughs> I don't, I can't do this for, you know, for my son and for me. I said, I can't keep on doing things like this. And so then I realized that a lot of what I was being attracted to or missing on the red flags was that I was looking at people that were exactly like my biological father. Mm -hmm. And so all of that kind of went back to my childhood. And it took me a long time to just get myself right and really focus on what I needed, what, what Noah needed. And I was in a really, really good place. And I felt like I was on top of the world again. And as soon as that happened, it was like everything kind of opened up. My old college boyfriend I hadn't seen since I was 18 years old, so 10 years all of a sudden, he was in Houston from Kentucky because I'm a Kentucky girl. I, mm -hmm. I was born and raised there, and I went to college there, and I ended up moving away after my first year of college because my sister had heart problems, and so I moved back home thinking something serious was going on with her, and I never spoke to my boyfriend there again. We just kind of lost touch. We were 18. We needed to kind of live a little. And I saw that he was in town on a business trip of all things in Houston. I happened to be home and I said, hey, we need to get dinner. I reached out to him on Facebook and he said, yeah, let's, let's do it. And it was like over that dinner, we realized how much had never changed. He said I was the one that got away from him. And he was going to move to Houston and we were going to get married. And I'm like, okay, we'll see. You know, and this is a girl that's saying, I am never getting married ever again. again I'm going right. to live alone for the rest of my life. Yes. And hey, I hear you. <laughs> I, and four months later, I was married on the beach in Jamaica. So, you know, life happens and it's short. And I have just chosen to enjoy my life now. And I am in a great chapter. I love my husband dearly. He is my mm -hmm. best friend. We have a beautiful baby girl. They told me in Boston I'd never be able to have children again. And I got to give my son a sibling, which he always wanted. And Riley is wonderful, even though we had complications for her with her. I'm giving my whole book away now. I need to stop. Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> it's life. And life is just one crazy thing after another. Why don't you and just I've take the book and open it up and give us the audible version? Yeah, you know, just do the right? audible version. I need to. I just need to read it all. I know. 
<laughs> well, you're going to well, do an audible, you... audible books. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's got a good voice for it. I you think that, that will work out well. Well, I actually read my book, so if anybody buys the audiobook, it's it's me, country accent and all. So good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm from West Virginia, so I get, I get the country accent. I totally understand where you're coming from there. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> so my husband's uh, actually on the West Virginia line. He's in oh, like really? the Eastern Appalachian Mountains. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. so funny. Oh, you got yourself a real country <laughs> boy then. Yeah, no doubt. Oh, about absolutely. Yeah. So I'm I'm from the Panhandle, so mine's a little mine's a little less country but you know even still you know you know the west virginia jokes are west virginia jokes all so. right you guys can compare trailers <laughs> <Yeah>. later <laughs> <laughs> see 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 what i gotta go through rebecca see this all right this, this is off. where he's gonna tell you about his trailer and he's got 10 foot high grass and like 10 cars out front on blocks and, <laughs> blocks yeah. and, <laughs> and my cousin or my sister right <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, I've heard all. I've heard that's them why all, his right. first marriage I didn't work it. out it was his cousin's second sister <laughs> <laughs> You hear this? Hate those. <laughs> so, of the many, many lessons that we've heard today, what's one lesson that that uh, you know we can get from actually reading your story, and and what do you hope it will be? There's 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 got to be that one lesson that that uh, you know we can all pull from this. I mean, yeah, send obviously, us off, the, send us off with a good one here. Yeah, yeah, and keep my trailer. I don't even think it's a yeah. Keep. I don't even think it's a lesson, really. I think I just want people to have hope after they read my story. And maybe they'll start to see things in a different light. Because I don't feel like my obstacles are greater than what anyone else goes through. We all have our stuff in life. We all have our metaphorical bombs that blow up right in front of us. And it's all in what we do afterwards and how we handle them. And I feel like I'm a better person because of everything that's happened to me. Do I wish that I could go back before terrorism became a part of our lives every single day? I would love to go back, but I can't. And so what I can do is move forward in the best way I can and not ask myself what if. And I think that's what we get kind of messed up on sometimes is we, we're constantly saying, well, what if this happened? Or what if I had never gone to Boston and all of this? And we can't change what happens to us, but we can control how we handle it and how it defines us going forward. And so I hope that people enjoy my book and I hope that it just brings a smile to their face. And I hope that they feel inspired by reading it. Absolutely. And before we let you go, where can listeners connect with you and pick up a copy of your book? My book will be released on April the 4th, so we're getting very close. Um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, any retailers, and also on my website, RebeccaMGregory.com. And then I have all social media under Rebecca M. Gregory as well. So I I thank you everyone in advance for, for reading and purchasing and I'm just so excited to put this out to the world. All right, you broke up a little bit there. How about you repeat the website one more time? Oh, sure. And my website is RebeccaMGregory.com. Okay. And we'll put a link to that on the show. Mm-hmm. So at thestatementshow.com. See? Gotta get our own self plug in there. <laughs> yeah. It's our time, right? <laughs> Rebecca Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. Make sure everybody gets out there, checks out her new memoir, Taking My Life Back, April 4th. So make sure you get out there and check it out. Thank you so much, Rebecca. We loved having you on the show. Your story is something that I cannot even imagine, but I'm so glad to hear uh, that everything's going great for you. Everything that you've went through, I, I cannot even imagine doing it. But again, thank you so much for being on the show with us. 
Oh, it was awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Wow, Zach. That was a great interview. I love that woman. I mean, I could not imagine going through what she just went through. That's it's you insane. Know, she's a sweetheart and uh, appreciate her coming on the show and sharing her story with us. I, I couldn't imagine going through what she went through, but if you want to get out there and get her book, it comes out April 4th. It'll be on our website at thestatementshow.com. We'll post a link on the show and also to her website. Yeah, just go out yep. there and, and get that book on April 4th. And I think it's a yep. very inspiring story you're going you're gonna to read. And it's called Taking Back. Nope, Taking My Life Back. I'm sorry, Taking My Life Back. Rebecca Gregory, taking my life back. All right. Uh, Terry, that's another episode of The Statement Show, and the lights are out. See ya. Get out <laughs> yeah. of your mom's basement. Yeah, right. <laughs> How I'm are you the, doing? All right. I'm the other co-host. Yeah. Wonderful. He's the unimportant one, Rebecca. Don't worry about him. All right. This, this <laughs> is where he's going to tell you about his trailer, and he's got 10-foot high grass and, like, 10 cars out front <laughs> on blocks. And... Blocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to The Statement Show. Visit our website at thestatementshow.com. Check out our upcoming guests. There's plenty more to come. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, all on the front page of the website. Again, thestatementshow.com. Go ahead. Give us a listen. Like us on iTunes. Leave a review. Oh, yeah. The lights are out.